Guy, would you mind praying for us, please? Bringing us together this morning, we pray that uh, through your word you speak to us and, and uh, remind us of the sanctity of marriage. And uh, we pray that this is a very difficult topic for so many. So we pray that you would give us wisdom, give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to have compassion on So we're going to start on the, the side page with the table. So very quickly, uh, I just want to, to summarize what the basic no divorce position is, or again, what I want to call the rule as opposed to the exception. Uh, let's go ahead and read Matthew 19, uh, verse 3. Sorry, I should have had you turn there. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's that permissive. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so it's a basically straightforward position. Marriage is something that is formed by God. It is a one flesh uh, union, and we basically will talk about these things in the term of it's a covenant, right? Now, we're not going as far as the Catholics would say this is a sacrament because that plays in their position, but basically, God has formed this. You're no longer two individuals just kind of side by side coexisting. You're intermingled in such a way that there's, it's impossible to, to, to break that apart. You would literally tear, and, and you would, and even, even in a exception world, we must at least acknowledge when a marriage breaks up, it, it's violence. It's, 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 it's terrible, and it has lots of effects. Um, and that's a reality. So it's obviously something we don't want to happen. Um, but, but the idea is, and they, and they read the word one flesh in the sense of it's like a kinship bond, a brother and a sister, a mother and a child. No matter what you do, whatever you do, relationally to affect that bond, it's, it's a bond. It's a flesh bond that can't be uh, torn apart. And so, of course, the only way you could actually have a, re a remarriage in the sense of divorce. We see in Luke, can't remember what chapter, Luke 20, Jesus talks about, you know, you're neither married nor given to marriage in heaven because death ends the marriage bond. That's the only thing in this position that can break that bond. So to remarry without the death of, of the spouse would be adultery. Why? Because in God's eyes, that marriage is still there. That one flesh union is indissoluble, and therefore, to marry another, to live with another, as Romans 7 says, would be tantamount to adultery in God's eyes. No matter what you think, no matter what the law says. Okay, so that's basically the position. There's other... Other scriptures about Malachi, God hates divorce, um, the whole analogy, Ephesians 5 and elsewhere, that, that marriage shows the bond between Christ and his church. Christ would never be unfaithful to us, no matter how much we're unfaithful to him. So that, that wouldn't make sense. And there's a lot more that can be said there. So that's the basic position. So now we want to read, continue reading in Matthew 19. And basically, Protestants have, for the most part, seen two exceptions to the rule. So let's keep reading there. They said to him, why then did Moses, 
uh, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so any allowance you might have for divorce was a temporary thing given by Moses, hardness of heart. And people will disagree on exactly what was, similar to these camps, actually. Some would say the bar is high, and some would say the bar is easy. We're not going to get into that, because obviously, whatever happened with Moses, you can take both. Then uh, Jesus is saying, but essentially, but I say unto you. So I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I just don't think it'll help us overall today. Okay, at verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so other than that exception clause, that phrase is used many times. That's another thing they'll say. But there's so many places where Jesus doesn't give this exception. And so let's not, let's not jump on the bandwagon too much. But essentially... The Protestant, major Protestant position would be sexual morality. Um, some would say that's adultery. Some say it goes beyond that. Actually, let's just say sexual unfaithfulness. The word is pornea. We talked about that last time. And so there's going to be some kind of sexual morality. There's some kind of threshold that has to do with the sexual union. And that makes sense. We heard a few sermons ago how sex is that covenant... Um, Renewal in a marriage. And you don't really have a marriage without sex. And so the big exception here is sexual morality. So before we look at what that is, how would, how would this position then critique some of the things they've said here? Well, yes, God has formed it. But does that necessarily mean that God couldn't unform it or that man couldn't unform it? Yes, it's a one flesh union. But what exactly does that mean? Pastor brought up last time, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about how joining yourself to a prostitute is a unique sin because you become one flesh with her. And yet the exhortation isn't to stay with that prostitute. Okay, you've, you've had sex with someone you shouldn't have. Now you're married. You're stuck. That, that's not Paul's exhortation. It's to flee that relationship. And so somehow having a one flesh union doesn't appear to mean something that's completely indissoluble. At least in not all cases, not in that case. And so therefore, we'll talk about some of the nuances. If there is a chance for divorce, then there wouldn't necessarily be a chance for adultery. So that's the section of my pornea. Uh, in the bottom of your chart there, I, I talk about that. And we'll, we'll kind of come back to that. Exactly what does that mean? Does it mean adultery? There's another word for adultery. Why doesn't Matthew use that word? Right? So does that mean this position? They'd say because he used the word pornea, not something else, he's not talking about adultery. He's talking about something else. He's talking about the fact that you married your sister. It's not a legitimate marriage, right? Um, or some other sexual sin that's not adultery. Or on the other hand, you could say, well, it's not just adultery. It would include adultery, but other things that we might move into here. And so that's where you start getting your, your kind of theological differences is really how you read these words. Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 7 for the ma second major exception. Some people don't like the word exception in, the, in this chapter, but 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, 
she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Now to uh, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So there's different words used for this. Desertion. Basically, your spouse leaves you. You're, you're now physically separated, um, which isn't the same as divorce, but in a sense, it's a de facto divorce. You, you, don't, you can say you're married on paper, but you're not really living a marriage. And so then you get into all sorts of, of diverse views. So uh, this one, basically, okay, so there's, there's some kind of sexual, well, whatever this threshold is, whatever sexual morality means, Jesus clearly gives, and he does it again in Matthew 5, there is an exception, a lawful, sinless exception to having a divorce. And then in this case, it isn't so much a grounds for divorce, it's not giving you permission to go get divorced. It's kind of, you are essentially divorced, right? You've, your spouse has left, let them go. And so now we get into somewhat muddy waters. Even people who can agree here will not agree here. And so there will be those who say, okay, you might be sinless in the fact that you have a divorce, either through this reason or through this reason. And yet, through some of the language there, you can see in 1 Corinthians 7, but you're still supposed to remain unmarried. There are still times, even if you're sinless here, that you are not free to go get remarried. Uh, some would see uh, verses 10 and 11 as referring to believers, so you're married to a believing spouse, and therefore you never have a chance to remarry. If, if your believing spouse left, you should always seek reconciliation with that believing spouse. And then they would see that verses 12 and beyond are talking about an unbelieving spouse. If an unbelieving spouse leaves you, they see a difference. If an unbelieving spouse leaves you, let them go, and you are free to be married, right? And then others would say, no, if you're free to be divorced, from the text or just logically, they'd say, if there's a lawful divorce, there is necessarily a lawful remarriage. If you go back to Matthew 19, the question is, the, word, the, the exception clause, except for pernia, does that except for pernia apply to divorce only? So you're free to get divorced except for pernia, but then if you remarry, you're committing adultery, or does it refer to the whole verse? If you're divorced and you're free to get married except for pernia, does that make sense? So again, you'll, you'll, you'll just have people all over the map on this stuff of how they slice and dice these verses. Um, and, and again, so it's, it's not going to be something we solve today. I just want to really implore that as you read these through, you don't, you don't come with a a desired end goal, and try to force the scriptures. Be faithful in your exegesis. Go to all the study materials, because there's no way to avoid the Greek and the Hebrew on this as you study these, right? Because these clauses matter. Um, and do your best to be faithful to what you can see in God's word, is, is the best I can say there. Because even among Protestants, uh, that's going to be tough. Some say that only remarriage is okay for divorce because of Matthew 19, but in 1 Corinthians 7, they say not for desertion. And there's a general principle there. And this, this goes into our practical discussion. I mean, how long do you wait, right? Of course, we are to seek reconciliation. As far as it depends on us, live in harmony with everyone. And we want to apply that to our marriages. But how long, right? At, at what point is that 
a fool's errand? At what point is God legitimately declaring you free from everything you've possibly done? There are people that very much live in this world or um, in this world with no remarriage who take great sacrifices to live faithfully to what they see in Scripture. I mean, they, they will live there. Into, I had a, one of my mentors in college, I think I might have mentioned, he wore his ring. He was divorced. He wore his ring because he didn't believe he was divorced in God's eyes. His wife remarried. And he just, in his mind, he was going to live single and celibate and hope that he got to be reconciled one day somehow. That, that's a great personal sacrifice, right? And so we don't want to castigate these people because they give up a lot to hold their position. Um, and so let's, let's be sensitive there. Uh, we won't turn to Deuteronomy 24, but basically when he says that Moses gave you a certificate of divorce, the ESV uses the phrase some indecency. Some would say that's basically the same as pornea. Somehow there's some threshold. It's a little complicated because in the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to divorce your wife for adultery. You were supposed to stone her. And so exactly what is meant there, I don't know. You never see those Mosaic commands carried out properly or exactly how they're written even in the Old Testament. So that gets into a, a whole other thing. I want to draw your attention, 1 Corinthians 7, to um, this is another difference. When he says, uh, what verse is that? That you're free. Okay, so in verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And then in verse 39, and in Romans 7, talks about a wife is not bound to her husband. Now, those are similar words, but they're not the same word. And so some people will say, see, if I'm not enslaved, therefore it's the same as not being bound in marriage. I'm free to remarry. That's where that position comes in. Other people see a difference. They would say, yes, at death you're not bound to be, to, uh, you're not bound to marriage in the case of death, so you can go free, free. But to not be enslaved would simply refer to the fact that you're not in sin for not physically living with your spouse and carrying out marital duties. Um, and so, again, you get into a bit of a, a word war uh, on what you see. Let's go back to, at the bottom of your chart, pornea. Um, what, would, what would marital and faithfulness mean, or sexual immorality mean? Okay, certainly that would include adultery, right? Well, if you're in this position, it would certainly. But what else? Are there other sexual sins that would that would be at the level of breaking a covenant of marriage. <clears throat> and, be, and because we have this word pornea, there's, there's a bit of a room to, I was going to say smuggle things in, but that meant you were being nefarious in it, but to really interpret that word in other ways. Uh, what if your husband is, I mean, in, in a gross sense, um, enslaved to pornography? Is that, or in Japan, they're making sex doll, uh, true sex doll robots. Um, is, that, is that an unfaithfulness to someone who's not a human, right? Just because lust is a hard issue, right? At what level does, there, does that break your marital bond? These are tough. These are tough issues. Um, what if they're guilty of molesting someone, your daughter? I mean, I know it's kind of sick to all think about, but at some point we want to be faithful to what God is saying and yet really... I have to understand what it is. And, and just because you think you'll never be in this situation, you very well may be called upon to, to give counsel or to pray with someone in these situations. Okay, and so, and like I said, I could draw 20 columns here. At some point, this is just a spectrum. At some point, you get away from the strict words 
and you start interpreting things and applying things. And one of the first things people think about is you know, physical harm. Certainly, if a husband is battering his wife, she would not be expected to stay in that marriage, right? Well, some would say, you're not expected to stay physically in the home, but yes, you don't necessarily have grounds for divorce, that you would seek reconciliation, you would pray for a renewal in that man's heart. Um, some would say, well, if he gets to the point that he's excommunicated and now seen as an unbeliever, because and then I'm free to remarry, but until then I'm not, right? It goes all over the place. Uh, some of the terms there on your chart um, have been used in history. If, 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 you, if something is like physical threat, and they use the term malicious dealing, something malicious, something the husband or wife is working against that marriage in such a way, but for whatever reason, maybe just to spite the spouse, I'm not giving you a divorce, I'm not letting you divorce, I'm not leaving you, I'm gonna make you leave, leave me. Um, I kind of somewhat ingest, but would is a one time is a one night stand grounds, right? People would disagree on that. The bond is broken. I'm out. Or you know, is this on the level of a, a one year affair? Those are different sins, right? They're both sins, but they're different in a degree at least. Same with desertion. Um, my husband's gone to prison for three years. I have grounds. Well, or he's out on a drinking binge for a month, right? Struggles with drugs and alcohol. He comes back, tries hard, keeps going. And that's where, you know, I, I don't mean this to, to stray in morality. It's just, it's, at some point it strays more and more from the actual biblical text, maybe. And one thing I think we want to wrestle with is how do we, how do we not become guilty of those who would, well, I know the text says homosexuality is a sin, but we're in a new age, or gender roles. At what point do we feel we're doing that in this area? At what point are we leaning on common sense versus God's word? That's a tough one. I don't, I don't have set answers for you. Um, again, you want to do your best in a community as well to be faithful to God's word and to, and to feel that you are standing on God's word in whatever position you come to. You have Godly, godly men and all these, all these, all these positions to turn to. Yes. Um, the area of physical abuse is, is a really huge area. It's very prominent in this community. And Ed and I had the privilege of going to some biblical counseling conferences. Proverbs says that a wise man sees danger and fights himself. And I think it's really important that elders of the church take a very, very strong stand against domestic abuse, mm. and that they take a very strong policy of protecting their children from that. And I think it takes um, a huge amount of wise involvement because um, women in abusive situations not only have their own safety and often their lives at stake, but the type of role modeling that is set up for the children, uh, if there are children in that relationship, um, just causes lifelong damage. So it's something that we really can't gloss over. And I, I think it, um, you know, women have perhaps falsely assumed sometimes that the church expects them to stay in those situations. Um, 
I, and I think probably it's something that none of us feels capable of dealing with, but we certainly can't close our eyes to You bring up a good point. It, any scripture can be abused, right? And will be. And so we have to be very careful. This isn't, this isn't a topic where you can just kind of play it safe. I, I, I could paint the scenario where my wife, God forbid, uh, is in an adulterous relationship and leaves, and I would choose in my own self to remain single, right? I could take that stance. I could take that conservative stance. I'm not sure where this line is, and so to play it safe, I'm going to be here, right? But that's not a situation you can do that in. So you're saying, you know, some would, and there are people in history who have said, you know, I, I heard a guy say, I'm not saying that she can't duck. She just can't divorce him. I mean, how awful is that? But, and so at some point, of course you want to exhort to not be unfaithful to God's word. And yet, those are realities. That, it's not a conservative position to just stay with an abuser. Um, and that's tough. Yeah, Tim. One of the things you have to do with this is one of the more helpful things I've learned in dealing with ethical issues like this is there's normative, situational, and existential categories. Normative, what does the Bible see, say? Well, Genesis tells us what the Bible says. That's normative. Then there's uh, situation. What is the situation? In Corinth, Paul is dealing with believers, who be, or people who became believers. They were divorcing their spouses right and left. Right. Right. You have to include that in the context of your interpretation, or you're going to miss it. Right. And the third one is... Yeah, that's his main issue there, not, not even our discussion. And the existential situation is you have to take the person himself. What if, what if there's uh, uh, <coughs> mental uh, health issues, or what if there's uh, all kinds of other issues mm. that are dangerous, like terror? Right, right. Uh, so it requires what is called biblical wisdom. And I know you're going to get to this. I don't no. want to take the time. It's all right. Other than to say, uh, how do you know somebody's a believer or unbeliever? You don't know. I mean, how can we adjudicate that other than what they say by their mouth? Right, right. And so that complicates the situation. Yep. Yep. So I, I saw somewhere the multitude of counselors, their safety. I think that's wise. But it is... Uh, an extremely complicated issue, and I would hope people would be very slow to judge other people. Well, I think all, all you have to do is start unfolding this. That first position, strict position, it, it can become a means of self-righteousness. Yeah. I stayed faithful, and I didn't remarry. I don't think Jesus is going to love you anymore for that. Uh, I think that can become profoundly so And so it's just a complicated issue. You're doing a good job. It is. Uh, and, well, and, and that's part of the point, I think, is to, you know, maybe not be so certain, will, be willing to say this. One of the references I have in there is the guy who helped write one of the modern treatises on the no-divorce position. And after 30 years, is that his prime study? He's now over here, right? I know so, a man who held that position at Dallas for 30 years, no divorce for any reason, ended up being homosexual. Right. So, you know, it's just, it's so complicated. And it's like, you know, Solomon cut the baby in half. It's right. So let me just read through these, what I'm calling limiting principles, pastoral considerations. Um, because, again, we're kind of getting away from a strict text. So, where you determine that you can draw that line, I just want to, Put some questions out there. 
And then we'll look at the, what, what the Westminster says, and then we'll have our, our questions. So where, basically, this, your position ought to be determined on when you think a marriage covenant is dissolved in God's eyes, right? We're after what God's heart is and position is. Is it, there might be a safety of saying, well, I'm going to stay physically separated. Well, there would be some saying, well, that, that sounds like a good temporary measure. But to stay physically separated as a middle position doesn't make sense. I mean, either you're married or you're not, right? And you would, should never desire to be physically separated but stay married on paper. Um, some say you should do that because that's all you can do. And I'm going to say no. Whatever that right time for seeking reconciliation is, you're not really fulfilling a marriage duty by being physically separated. So whatever that right time is, if no reconciliation is there, then you should go to divorce. But again, some people say, nope, that's the best you can do. And you, you just pray for your life for reconciliation. Obviously, we want to seek reconciliation. I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to say my position, but I will on this point. I, I don't think, and I don't think the Westminster would say one night stand is just, whoop. it's almost like you're using that as an excuse. I'm out. I was looking for my chance. Um, that, that doesn't seem to be a right heart attitude to me. You can disagree. Um, how continuous persistent, I've talked about that. Um, and at some point on this, like, can you look at this situation like, you know, a spilled carton of eggs, they crack, it's a mess, and there's no way you're going to put that back together. Some would say it's more like a, a ball of yarn that you can, it's going to be hard, but you can, like doing the power chords at the music team, undoing all those chords. Um, it looks impossible, but it is possible. You know, and, and at what point do you say, even if you got to the point, yep, God, I did not divorce for a lawful reason, but I'm here in a new marriage with new kids. Am I supposed to leave that spouse? Some would say you are. I mean, our general position would, would be no. So it's tough. Go ahead and turn over your paper and just, just read the two uh, last two paragraphs of, I think it's chapter 24 in the Confession. Adultery or fornication committed after engagement, if detected before marriage, gives valid reason to the innocent party to break the engagement. So maybe not so big for our culture because we don't put much on engagement like some cultures do. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to seek a divorce and after the divorce to remarry, just as if the offending party were dead. So that's interesting. So that's that 1 Corinthians 7, 15, and 39. The Westminster sees that bondage, that slavery is essentially the same thing. If you have, they, number one, there is reason, there, there is biblical warrant for having a divorce. And if you have that, then divorce is permitted. That's the, basically the Westminster uh, position there. So at a minimum, Westminster sees a strict position, and some would camp here, and some would take it further. Um, basically, a divorce, a lawful divorce basically dissolves this union and therefore free to be married. All right, number six. Although the corruption of mankind is such that people are apt to seek arguments to justify unwarranted separation of those whom God has joined together in marriage, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as cannot be remedied by the church or the civil authorities is sufficient cause to dissolve the bond of marriage. So basically, here's your two. Here's your two categories. You don't want to add to those. Now, you might interpret those in a certain way, but you can't add to those two. In such cases, a public and orderly procedure is to be observed, and the persons concerned are not to be left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. So that's the pastoral. Don't do this on your own. 
Do not attempt to do this on your own. But that means every one of you, every one of us needs to be ready for someone who would come to us for advice. We need to be biblically prepared. So desertion does not appear to be limited to the unbelieving spouse, as some say. It's any kind of desertion. It certainly encourages reconciliation, not a quick decision. Uh, there, there's clearly some time period to mull this over to seek reconciliation, whatever that period is, something that's substantial. It recognizes the temptation to expand the biblical warrant, right? Again, check your heart. Why are you swinging so far this way? Make sure you really see grounds in God's word. And there's a multi- safety multitude of counselors. Okay. So you can read through discussion questions. Um, what do you want to hit? Or comments? Yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering about, the, there's a few places, um, for example, in Luke 16 and in Mark 10, where um, there's not an exception clause. Yeah. And, uh, and it's worded even more forcefully in a lot of times, we don't look at those passages. For example, in Luke, I believe Jesus says, everyone who marries a divorced person is adultery. Yep. And there's no escape route there. So what do we do with the passage? So some would see that as hyperbolic language. And if you read the rest of that passage, Jesus is talking in, you know, gouging out your eye to save yourself. So um, someone read it in that way. Some would say that not everything was recorded. Some would say it was to that crowd. There was a specific situation where another's the, the exception was given. So your, your reasons are a bit all around. Um, it maybe goes back to what Tim was saying. Well, I can't remember your categories, but the first one. Normative, that he's speaking in a normative way and not getting into all the details, or at least what was recorded. That would that would be the defense. And there's probably more. Yeah. Yeah. And really what Jesus and Paul are speaking to is a matter of the heart and answering to God rather than answering to a civil authority at this point. But I think so many people try to find that loophole because they can get that piece of paper. Sure. And they, they focus on that instead of focusing on their scriptural yeah, even, and even if there is a scriptural warrant, that doesn't mean your heart is right in seeking it, right? There's lots of good works you could do with wrong intentions and good things to be involved in that become an idol, as we talk about all the time. It's kind of like, well, it is. It's like marriage. When my father told me when I got pregnant before I got married, he said, you're already married in God's eyes. The moment that you take that sexual act, in God's eyes, if you're a believer, you're married. So it's not... So much a piece of paper from the state, but you got to look at it as your relationship. Yeah, I think it was Isaac who went in to Rebecca, and they were married, right? There you are. Does that mean you're in covenant with that person? Because, like you said, if you do a one-night stand, you two flesh and one—that doesn't mean they're in covenant. That—that's, and that's—that's what our position would basically say is. That was obviously a sin, and it was a unique type of sin, but that doesn't necessarily establish a covenant, where this position would say it does. Yeah. It certainly brings up the whole area of how do we guide our children? How do we help them um, learn to 
make these decisions. This is such a huge decision. What, how do we teach them as a church? Um, how do we um, have our own healthy marriages so that we can be good examples? Amen. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would second what Terry said. Um, I, I've had a lot of discussions on this issue. And I, I, while I think that there's not one solution that we can use for all situations, that flies in the face of you know, what Jesus um, uh, said about the Pharisees. But I think that if children grow up in churches where they say, they see that my mom will can never, ever, ever leave my dad. My dad can never leave my mother. I mean, obviously without those exceptions, and um, children grow up in a household where dad talks like that, and the men of the church come after him. And children growing up and seeing marriage being taken that seriously as being a sacred, indissoluble bond, then the children will take marriage seriously, and they will not get married flippantly. Yeah, I, that's one of the things that generationally, in our church culture, we should be promoting rather than a legalistic approach, or... <coughs> Simply a, a grace kind of Yeah, I, I almost think that commitment to a marriage institution is as important as, you know, commitment to this person you're going to marry. I don't, I don't know where that rates, but you don't know what you're going to feel in 10 years or what she's going to feel or look like. You know, if it's based on any of that without a real commitment. Um, well, you also don't. can't have the idea that if you follow all the rules and follow some kind of formula. That it's going to work yeah. out. Amen. Absolutely right. The complication is, I know of people who've been divorced not because they wanted to, but because the other person did. And so they're sort of, quote, the innocent party. Right. But here's a pastoral question I have. Society at large, and I'm sure it's more than this now, maybe less because people are choosing to live together rather than to get married. Yeah, the marriage rates are down. You should be one out of every two marriages. So you look around... In the church, not too different. How do we as a church minister to people? I mean, that's the reality of the world we live in. Yeah. How do you minister to people who you would say biblically right now are in a, an adulterous situation? Uh, do we excommunicate them because they did that? Or Can we, I mean, either hypothetically or any real world experiences of someone, how did you work through this with someone, a real person one-on-one? You kind of touched on it, so here comes this guy, he's been married for 10 years, he's got three kids, he comes up for church membership while he's divorced, and he actually was involved in the divorce, so is he eligible for church membership? <coughs> I, you know, it's, it's difficult. What? Let me say one more, one more thing. Yeah. Um, as an attorney, I did divorce for a number of years, and I sat before and listened to the judge. There's nothing uglier and more contemptible and disgusting than divorce court and mm. what it breeds. There is no cure for all the problems that breaking up a family mm. causes. It is ugly beyond belief. I got, after a few years, I just quit because I felt if you're going to be a Christian, you can't participate in mm. this because you're facilitating people leaving their spouses. And they become the enemy, all those hard ideologies. So how would you counsel someone coming up? I mean, it, it's I, I could see, I'll just admit in my own life, I could see me wanting to be this, to act in this, well, even act in this way if I can, and yet not necessarily 
enough in the word to say that you must agree with me, right? So how do you... Yeah. Okay, so if I have somebody that I care about that they're uh, married to an alcoholic who drives drunk and um, their life is hard, like, okay, so what do I tell that person? What do we tell her? No, we're not chickening out. What's that? Gotta know a whole lot more yeah. Okay, what, what kind of things would we ask? So there's, it's probably easier to say physically stay separated. What about divorce? It's like church discipline. It's the last thing you should do. It's a good way of saying it. Not the first thing. But knowing the difference. The time difference between first and last is not so clear, right? You know someone's driving drunk, you can call Metro because they're endangering the community at large and they're breaking the law. That's true. Yeah. Okay. What do we do with that marriage, though? I think in those, a lot of those situations, it can be frustrated, frustrating for the offended party um, when the person who's an alcoholic, for example, um, uh, begs for forgiveness, um, comes before God, repents, but then does it again and again and again. And that's really frustrating, you know, because Jesus says um, um, that if they repent, we should forgive them 70 times, 70 times. Right, right. But then at the other hand, if the person keeps doing the same thing, then are they really repenting? Right. And then you've got this whole human life and this, this mother with her children. Right. Forgiveness does not always mean the relationship is restored. Right. It does not always mean that. Yeah, we, we're you at a place of trust and of covenant. And, you know, we, we have somewhat luxury in our culture. We're all rich, pretty much. Um, there are safety nets. Think about cultures like back then. I mean, if a woman didn't have a husband, she was destitute. And that's why I think it, it says if you commit a if you divorce your wife, you cause her to commit adultery because she really has no option but to go find a husband. So this become, the stakes become much higher at this point. Yes? I don't think I don't think you're the guy that keeps doing something like that. I think Jesus is possible to recover too. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, maybe his repentance isn't, isn't true because otherwise there's no turning away. Yeah. Yeah, that and that's a great point. And the confession is talking about that is let's not wait till here, right? <laughs> let's if you're I mean, some of you I'm sure are going through marriage problems. Let's not wait. Let's go get help. Even if it was someone from another church. But I sure hope that our community would be the type of community that can lean on and be transparent and get that help. Is uh, divorce counseling for your own marriage counseling? 
complicated when you're in marriage counseling before you get married. Is divorce addressed with guys? This may happen in your marriage, and this is what you should do. Yeah, I don't know. I've never given marriage counseling. I think it should be a part of, you know, upfront, being upfront with people and teaching them. And a young romantic couple probably won't hear that, yeah. right? That's never going to happen to me. I was at a marriage once where the guy preached and talked about, one day you're going to be sitting at the kitchen table wondering if this should all end. It's like, well, that's sour grapes, but there's some reality to that, right? I don't want you guys to wiggle out some of these hard questions. But um, how long do you wait? How long do you wait for reconciliation? I know it's not an exact number, but what, what type of steps... What type of things are you doing in that interim period where, um, you know, there's ongoing sin or, yeah? You can't put a time frame. No. If that person is on their face, seeking God on a regular basis, waiting really to hear from Him, and not just, and getting the heart changed in the, in the interim so that you're not leaving for the wrong reasons. Whatever. So there isn't a time. How no. long do you wait? That's uh, individual. It, it it is. It is. And you're not doing it alone. You put a time frame on it that was minimalistic. Amen. Yeah. yeah. Guy. It's not a biblical advice, but certainly practical. As one who's been through divorce, I can assure you that the longer you've been married, where the two have become one, uh, when the divorce happens, you really become one half. Mm. And, and, it's, and so before ever considering marriage, you really have to be whole again, or you're bringing the baggage of that into any other relationship. Right. So, yeah, new marriage isn't going to fix that whole. I think, you know, as a church, we need to be cognizant of the healing process and be part of that in the life of the divorcee. And that's a hard thing. As, as one who's been through it mm. and been transparent in, in the process, I will tell you, not from necessarily members of this church, but within the evangelical church movement, I've had every one of these disciplines come to me, and some of them tell me that there's other kind of sin in my life. And so, you know, the, the law is important because it reflects our sin, but the importance that we need to bring to the table in interacting with anyone on this is grace. And I, you know, there's a place to put the law out there, but it's the gospel. The gospel is the law reflects that we cannot, we cannot keep the law, and that's why we need to choose. So I think the importance for us is, is not to beat people over the head with the law, but to use the law to reflect their inability to and to be able to deal with this and then bring it to bring their gospel. Yeah, I mean wherever you end in here or shift in your life, if you don't end in the end with thank God we have a savior, <laughs> you know, we've missed something. Leah. For for somebody in our congregation um, who is struggling what kind of resources do we have to offer and, and are they obvious? I mean, rather than going to the bookstore and right, they're, they're still a bookstore, right? Rather than going to the bookstore and 
we have the table out there. Oh, those bookstores. Seeking a self-help book. Are the resources to yeah, that would clearly be intimidating, even with the godliest of men, to be a woman on her own with seven men, right? So, right, that's, I would assume. Um, obviously, any, any close relationship in the church would be a help, right? We have structured relationships, community groups, um, some Bible studies, but obviously you don't need a structure. If you don't have one or two really good peop- friends in this congregation, you're doing something wrong, and you should be seeking that. And I would say seek peers as well as those who are discipling you, who are older in the faith, and those who are younger than you. Every one of us has something to offer and something to gain. Some churches have that in more of a structured, you know, discipling relationship. It's on a piece of paper, and there's some good to that. But um, we should not be floating on an island in this world. And you can't be close friends with everyone in this room. It's impossible. You don't have the capacity. You need one or two or three really good ones that really challenge you, and you can really open up to. I saw a hand there. Yeah. Some would say yes. Some would see in that 1 Corinthians 7 a difference. Are you talking about the person that we're talking to? Well, in one sense it doesn't. Hebrews 13 says marriage is honorable among all, right? It's an institution of God. We're all image bearers of God. All of our marriages reflect even Christ in the church, even among two unbelievers. And so at one level, yes, if you you could divorce wrongly or rightly, remarry wrongly or rightly. And yet I guess in a counseling situation that isn't the closest thing that I really care about, right? What if they do everything by the law and marriage and divorce properly and they don't have Christ? I mean, what difference does it make? So I, I guess at one level, it doesn't matter, but at another level, I, I want their heart, right? I want them to have a savior. And we'll you know, let this clean up at some point because clearly their heart's not right. Anything you don't do by faith is sin. So no matter what physical actions they take in line with the law are still sinful in their life. So we've got to get to their heart issues, no matter what. Oh, one more. No. All right. Out of time. I'm sorry. All right. We're going to finish April through the confession through April. I think Paul has a week and Tim has three. How fair is that? Uh, and then in May, we'll start with the social justice for two months. Uh, you close it for? Dear Lord, we just want to thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the institution of marriage, Lord, that that bond between a man and a woman, Lord, that pictures your relationship with us. Thank you, Lord, for for what you've given us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that to show us how it is that we should live and honor you, Lord. And 
We thank you, God, for the church and this this institution, Lord, of being ministered to. And Lord, we thank you, God, for all the people here, Lord, that we can call upon in time of need. We thank you, Lord, for the teachings. And we just ask the Lord to have mercy upon us, God, in our hour of worship, Lord. And uh, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.